Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Yeah. The charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh-oh. Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Hello, everyone. Uh, Andy Richter here with another episode of The Three Questions. And today I am posing those questions to a very funny man uh, who bridges the gap between current events and comedy. Uh, and, <laughs> and who, after this, is going to get a root canal. Is that right? It's no, a root canal? extraction. An we're, extraction. We're, we're, yeah, we're coming back one less tooth, baby. Oh, wow. And is it in the front? Because that, that'll hurt your career. No, it's back right. I don't think I said your name. It's Roy Wood Jr. here. Yes. Uh, how are you? I'm here. I'm I'm good, man. I'm not even scared of the root of the the wisdom tooth. I had back in the day. This is how hard you have to work. I had two wisdom teeth pulled the same day, and I went back to work the next day in radio because yeah. I was that afraid of losing my job at the time. Also, I was 24, so you got a yeah. little bounce back in you. Precisely. Yeah. No, there's shit you can do. There's shit you can do when you're young that I just like. I used to do uh, Pratt Falls for fun. Like I used to be able to literally fall down a flight of stairs and just kind of like taught myself, you know, like Come how to protect up. yourself. You know, I mean, they'd have to be carpeted stairs. I wouldn't do it, on, you know. But I mean, it was. I started doing it when I was a kid. Like we had a narrow stairway that you could kind of slow your speed by pushing the walls. You know, like, but you could still make it funny. And I, you know, and like just. Pratt falls for fun Insane. to get laughs at parties. And then uh I I was doing a bit once for just like somebody's video where I was I was in the yard and I was like falling but catching my my fall with my elbows. And I fucked up my elbow for like six months. You know, and I was like, <laughs> I can't do this shit anymore. This is it was funny at one point, but now my fucking elbow hurts for a long it hurt for a long time. Bro, there were some days on the road when I started, and I started at 19, where my record is Birmingham, Alabama to Buffalo, New York, 15 and a half hours. I only got out of the car three times. Jesus Christ. And then I performed when I got there. Wow. Like, now, I don't think I could drive more than three hours Yeah, yeah. without some degree of drowsy highway hypnosis and i put in half a million miles on the odometers over the years so i feel like i've earned the right to just cower when it's a three-hour drive i just yeah, go yeah. i don't want to do it and say so you take over yeah also too I, I couldn't i couldn't i would i have to pee i you know peeing so much as you get older too oh nah man you just reuse that gatorade bottle that's from the gatorade <laughs> you drank at the last like that's how you, you no know, i know use reuse i had <laughs> to do that in fucking la traffic like living in la <laughs> like just especially if it's like it's something you know if there's like a morning trip and it's always the morning because of the coffee and it's like if, if i have to go to santa monica in the morning i feel like i better have some kind of some kind of container with a cap on it because <laughs> I, I stuck in the goddamn traffic. I might have to r- relieve myself. Well, now, so, okay, well, let's get back to this extraction. It's a wisdom tooth. It, ha- have you got, is it your last one? Tooth number 17. I thought that I'd gotten them all. I've been here before. I ain't panicked. Yeah. This is one, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out. How'd you talk on the radio with two teeth missing after one day? Uh, the next was it day, noticeable? there was a little bit of slouch, 
Yeah. Well, I call it slop mouth. Uh-huh. <laughs> My mouth was a little juicy, uh-huh. you know, full of cotton, but I wasn't hosting, thankfully. I was like the comedic. I was fourth chair on oh, that I show see. at yeah, the time. Yeah. So I'm the pop in here and there guy. Yeah. Who just gonna, Hey, fellas. Now, y'all know y'all shouldn't be doing that. Anyway, <laughs> let's look at the next call. Like, I was that guy. I didn't carry yeah, home yeah. breaks, thank God. No, I'm familiar. I'm familiar with having a job where you're talking on TV, but you can pick your shots. You know, like, if it's, if there's a day, you know, I mean, there's been plenty of days. I used to, in the old days, just because it would depend on how the bits were laid out on the Conan show, where I would say to somebody, like, if I play my cards right, I won't have to say a word tonight. Just because, you know, I wouldn't be in the in the first bit and I wouldn't be in the second bit. And when you talk to people, like, because he, and I mean, we've joked about it, but like, there are have been times when, you know, like, I'll fuck with him a little bit. Where it's like, there's an interview that's like not going so great. You know, most of the time I'll try and like pitch in and help. But there's sometimes where I just sit there and like. Like, just let him. Yeah. Have fun over there. I'm over here. I'm over here quiet. I'm just watching. You want to know something funny, Andy Richter? What's that? We do the same shit on The Daily Show. (laughs) (laughs) There's days. There's days when you come in as a correspondent and you've just done three days on the road in some shit town to cover something meaningful, but you're exhausted. Those are like 13. You know, it's a long day when you're out shooting. And you come back in the office on a work day, and then our producer, Jen Flan, she'll just come up, yeah, you may be on the show tonight. They're still deciding in the writer's room, so you may want to go over and talk to this writer and that writer and see it. And in the back of my head, I'm like, please let it get cut from this show. Please let it get cut. <laughs> like, I'm exa- I just want to go in my office and hide and yeah. just scroll CNN to look for the next story. I don't need, I don't want to turn my brain on today. Yeah. And I'm for sure on the show. And then- Trump would do something goofy around two thirty in the afternoon. Hey, we're gonna we're gonna hold your segment for tomorrow, and we're gonna uh, address this Trump thing and add that to Act Two. So you don't have to do anything today, and then you have to act sad for ten minutes. <laughs> I've always mm-hmm. even out here out here doing sitcoms. I will hear stories people tell me, and I mean specific stories about specific people. People say I was on this show. And I was doing real well and I had all the, you know, and I was really killing. We went away for a rewrite. All my jokes ended up in the coming out of the mouth of the number one on the call sheet. Like the, the person that the star of the show stole all the funny lines and left me with nothing. Mm-hmm. And I, to me, that's always like, or people get mad when they get their lines cut. I'm like, you know, it's, <laughs> there, there's plenty to go around. And also it's like, I'll be fine. You know, it's words are work in our line of work. So, you know, I don't mind not working. What I figured out, and I learned this in my TBS days on Sullivan and Son, because I was ninth. We had a 10 person cast. Yeah. Jesus, that show was huge. You were on our, on our. Yeah. We were like across the lot. Yeah. 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 What I learned on that show was how to get laughs without having lines. Yeah. It's probably like, the reaction faces and how to like act against your scene partners and stuff to the point where now, if I don't have lines in my head, I'm still going, Oh, I'm still, I'm in the scene. Okay. Well, let me figure out what I can do instead. Right. Right. And I get a little happy about it, but yeah, you know, there's people that want, they want all the glory, but don't want to do all the work. That's why I don't even know what you want to talk to me about on this podcast today, but I'm going to tell you this quick Steve Carell story. Okay. Um, we were working on Space Force. Yeah. And he is probably the only actor I've seen who's literally in pretty much every page of that pilot episode. Yeah. He's in every page and every scene this dude was on and then performing the stuff five, like, you know, like normally you just, this is how I'm going to do it when I get there. And this is the way I'm going to do it. Steve Carell would do it eight different ways. Yeah. Like every page, eight different ways. Like God bless who has to edit it. But like his level of just being present, but then also constantly recreating and altering. Yeah. Giving them choices. You know, that's, that's, I always look at, cause I do the same thing in voiceovers. It's give them choices, you know, like, 
you know, like I'll do four takes of it's, you know, in cartoons and shit, do it four different ways just to give them choices, you know, like, you know, and then, you know, it, it's, it feels uh, generous. So, but anyway, sorry to interrupt. No, that's it, man. He's a good actor. That's yeah, all yeah. I was trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he's, he's pretty amazing and a pretty sweet guy too. I mean, unless you know something I don't. Nah, he was cool, man. He yeah. was cool. There, there's a quiet, um, no one talks about it. I don't talk about it often, but there's a very, very quiet, like for, and I know why it's quiet because the institutions haven't been around the same amount of time, but for all of the talk about SNL and the way SNL graduates commiserate with one another, and there's this fraternal thing that never leaves because you both worked in that same space at some point in your careers. Yeah. The daily show is very similar in that capacity. I can see that. Now, because it's fewer, the cast is smaller and people say it. So the dynamics are of course different. We're not churning out Will Ferrell's and Tina Fey's every single year like that. You know, it's more of a time release thing, but for to not know me, Steve Carell couldn't have been nicer. And yeah. to also have that date, like, I give you a perfect example. I don't know John Oliver. I was in New York. I had been working on a daily show all of two weeks, maybe. Mm-hmm. And I was just out getting a burger from a place and he was in there. And he just walks up and starts talking to me as if we've known each other for years and just yeah. breaking down the job and this and this and this. And it was all of seven, eight minutes, but so much was already understood Yeah, before the conversation even started. And yeah. I think that's the one thing about The Daily Show that, you know, I'm really appreciative of. You know, Jason Jones has always shown me love, you know, put me in the detour when I was yeah, on TBS. Yeah. You know, Sam B has been, Sam B, show, yo, the, the, the night of Trevor's first night, it was, corresp- it was old correspondence up and down the fucking hall. Yeah. Just showing yeah. support and love. Like, right. I don't know. It was weird, man. It's It was like, I don't know if they do this where you are, but uh, where, where you grew up. But in Birmingham, they do this thing on the first day of school where black men, um, there, there's a group of black men that, you know, promote positivity and learning. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're just black men who give a damn about the youth. They show up to all of the area city schools on the first day of school and they form like a welcome line. And as the kids come into school for the first day of school, they give them a high five. Yeah, I've seen video of that. That's what it felt like the first night yeah. of the Daily Show. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. It's just Oliver and B and Will Moore just, just straight down the hall. Yeah, just yeah. High five, high five, high five, high five. Yeah, no, that's great. And that's like, you know, and that's one of the best things about doing this kind of work is that collegial feeling, you know, it's like you got, you know, they're, they're not exactly friends and they're not exactly family, but you do have something shared and there is an instant understanding. You know, there's like, there's like you, you understand each other, you know, talking to this person, you're already like 60% of the way there, as opposed to if you were starting off cold with a stranger. Yes. And, And it's always so disappointing to meet a person like a comedy person who doesn't give you anything back, you know, who like you meet him and they're like, you know, they're not interested in like sort of that shared experience. They're just kind of, you know, just no fun. It's like shit. This whole, if you're not going to have fun doing this stuff, I don't understand why you do it, you know, cause it's, it, there's, there's a, a know, lot of insecurity that comes in that though. Yeah. And you tons know. of rejection and all kinds of shit. Yeah. Now I you mean, said it, you're, you're, you were raised in Birmingham. You were born there, right? You were, you were born in New York City? Yeah, I was born in New York, somewhere around like one year old. Um, you know, they started the down south sojourn. Uh-huh. You know, my dad my dad what it was, my mom, um my mom was getting a master's um at Memphis at the time Memphis State, now known as the University of Memphis. So we went down to Memphis while my dad wrapped up things in New York. And during that time, he got a job offer in Birmingham. And so mm-hmm. we kind of split time between Memphis and Birmingham until my mom got out of, um, until my mom got out of grad school. 
Yeah. So that was kind of, it's kind of like, uh, bi-coastal isn't the word, but you know what I'm trying to say. Up and right. down Highway 78 for three by hours. Southern. Yeah, by Southern. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, all of my cognitive life has been a Southern experience. You know, yeah. we started out in Memphis. I spent every summer in Clarksdale, Mississippi with my mother's side of the family. Like those were my babysitters every weekend while my mom yeah. studied. You know, I got, I would get out of school at two o'clock on a Friday. By four, I'm eating rice and sugar bread yeah. on my grandma's front porch, you know, in Mississippi, um, watching the mosquito truck come by. I tried to explain that to somebody that the way they still in some cities fight mosquitoes yeah. is to just drive a fucking truck down the street shooting chemicals into the air. You'll I, be fine, kitties. They did it. Uh, I, they did it when I was a kid. It happened a couple times when I was a kid. Um, yeah, just f- pesticide fog. And it, it was smelled like, great, though. That's what they don't tell you. That's why I never <laughs> wanted to go inside. This shit smelled amazing. It was fragrant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is there not... Now that you're out, you know, like in show business, is there like a kinship among Southern, among people with a shared Southern background? And is there a big, do you find a big difference between Southerners and, and Yankees? Ooh. In entertainment? Yes. All right. Here, here's the difference. Because I'm trying to make sure I'm honest and I actually aren't. New Yorkers rock with you once they know that you're serious about your craft. Yeah. Period. Once I see that you are invested and that you're someone who's actually trying and you're just not some half-ass. Yeah. We're good. In the South, the assumption is that we are good first. And then you discover that I'm a half-ass. And now (laughs) you have to decide what to do with this friendship. And what to do with this interaction, you know, I do think that because the conversation around the South circles so many negative things. Yeah. When you meet someone whose stated goal at the top of meeting them is to do something that is progressive and changing and to hopefully change the conversation around, you know, perceptions of people in the South. You can't do anything but to try and, you know, take them at face value. And yeah. sometimes you get burned. But yeah, yeah. there's definitely an instant kinship because there's so few of us. So that part of it becomes something dope. So I shot a pilot for Comedy Central in Birmingham two years ago. And with the idea being, all right, we get to show the city and this is a different character of a place, a small mm-hmm. big town, a big small town, whatever you want to call Birmingham. And I started getting connected to this network of filmmakers that are from the state who I never knew existed. Yeah. And then you start talking to this person and this person and this person. And, you know, when I was there doing radio, I was just a road comic. You know, that's a whole different fraternity. Yeah. Because you and me drive to the same place. So we are both, we've both, we connect through our struggles. Mm -hmm. I I don't know if that's the best way for humans to always interact. Yeah, yeah. But you suffered the same thing I suffered. (laughs) Let's have a beer. We both know something that sucks. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so that's a different thing. But with the film and television thing, it was dope meeting all of these people that are trying to do something that, you know, is unprecedented in terms yeah. of just trying to create opportunities and build awareness that these opportunities exist for people in this region, because that's what connects us. I wanted to do comedy at 14. I couldn't do it till I was 19, because that was the first time I heard of a comedy club. And there was a legendary club in Birmingham that had been there since the 80s. I just didn't know about it. Yeah. I don't you know, watch the channels they advertise on. I didn't listen to those radio stations. So I was just oblivious to it. So Yeah, no, now, it's uh, I you know, if you're not the kind of if you're not the kind of person that is like a natural sort of detective out there kind of like sniffing around to find uh you know, like to find out you know, where the comedy is. I was just talking to somebody the other day and they were talking to me about how like I started doing improv in Chicago 
and they were kind of stunned that like I didn't, you know, I called Second City because I'd heard of Second City, but I never saw a show at Second City. I mean, like I went to Second City at a touring company that would kind of like do stuff in high school gyms. And I saw that once or twice, but I don't think I tried to. I think somebody was like, it might, you know, my parents <laughs> might just been, come on, we're going to see this. But I never, you know, I didn't, it's the same thing. I didn't seek it out. I just, I don't know. I just kind of was like, I went where I was told in a lot of ways, you know, and yeah, you know, it. yeah. And then in Alabama, it's even worse because you're told to believe that that dream is unattainable. You live here. That's some LA stuff, boy. Don't you get your mind wrapped up in that. Just yeah. Get you a good job and get you a wife, boy, and just go on, on go to church. Yeah. And that worked, you know, for the generation before us. But what if you want something different and more for yourself? How do you get to that? And who could help you? So mm-hmm. it's just about being as much of a beacon as you can for people from that region, because people in that region are often told that they ain't got shit or they don't have the resources. They don't even know. My biggest, well, one of my biggest vices is replying to emails, advice emails more specifically. I mean, you do reply to them or you yeah, don't? Yeah, yeah. It's time consuming. Yeah. To the, I need like a form page, but that just feels dickish. But I, I need like just a reply all page. Like here's the answers to the the most asked, the frequently asked 20 questions of Roy. Yes. If you're from Alabama, read through these. And if your answer isn't there, then email me. You get this. <laughs> yeah, no. And I'm sure that, the, that there's 20 questions of what it's like to be a, a daily show correspondent or what it's like to, you know, be yeah. A how do comic. I get on T how yeah. do I start comedy? It's like, those are base level one-on-ones that I yeah, just, yeah. but you took the initiative to ask. So I can't not, I can't ignore you because if I ignore you, who's going to, we can assume no one's replying to these emails. Yeah. Somebody got to do it. Well, that's, I mean, that's great that you do that. I'm not as good at that. I mean, I'll get, I mean, I don't get a lot of emails, but uh, like DMs from people, you know, asking about like, how do I make it in comedy? And I mean, I don't have anything to, I don't have anything to tell them. I mean, anything, you know, because, you know, I've always joked, like when people say like, how do you do it? How do you make it in show business? I'm like, well, become a sidekick on a talk show uh, that replaces David Letterman. Because I just know the way that I did it, you know. If you're asking instead of doing, you're already hindering yourself. Yeah. There was some guy who messaged me about, oh, where do I find open mics? I'm like, all right, bro, just Google comedians from your city and ask them that. Yeah, yeah. Like, or that's Google one-on-one. open fucking mics. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but they want, but they're not, they're, what they're really doing though, they're not asking a question. They're seeking encouragement. Yeah. Because there's fear in making that leap, especially the older you are, the more you're risking. Yeah. Because you got less time on the backside to figure out a plan B. And if you got a wife and kids and all of that stuff, but this shit is hard, man. Most people aren't going to believe in you because they're scared of their own goals. So they project their fears onto you because they're too pussy to fucking take the leap to do what they really want to do. So they try to talk you out of doing what they want to do. Emmy award-winning John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., a special run of six live episodes created by and starring Mulaney that'll stream live on Netflix during the Netflix is a Joke Fest. The comically unconventional show will feature special guests where John Mulaney explores the city of Los Angeles during a week when every funny person is in it. Watch John Mulaney Presents Everybody's in L.A., debuting May 3rd live at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, only on Netflix. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at tmobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at tmobile.com. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Can't you tell my loves are growing? Your your dad was a renowned journalist. Your mom's an educator, correct? Yeah. Did that create like a little microculture of of you know feeling the pressure to achieve? Oh hell yeah! Yeah. Oh my god, bro. This is this is. I'll tell you a story. Uh, everybody's got their Bitcoin story. Yeah. I don't. I don't even. I still don't know what it is. Well, their Bitcoin stock story. I had a chance to buy stock in Netflix yeah, when yeah. it was still DVD. Yeah. So I worked at Subway in high school. It's one of many places I worked, but that was probably the longest tenure job was Subway. And I made it up to um, to shift leader, and you kind of you start countdown register you know and now it's kind of opening up the books a little bit and i started doing the math on the subway franchise and i peeped that my owner was probably pulling down about a quarter meal a year in profit from this particular location wow and he just opened a second location and i did the math of that so we we bounced between both stores as employees and i do the math on that store and he's pulling down three hundo at the time in the 90s, Subway was not in black neighborhoods. Subway was considered, to a degree, it was more upper. Like, if you brought in, it was like Chipotle. It was new. Yeah, it was new. So yeah. that was the cool thing to have. And if you had that, people were somehow oddly impressed. Yeah. Like, oh, you had Chipotle? Really? Kind of like yeah. Panera 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Some shit. And I go to my mom. And I go, yo, I've done the research. I'd called the company. I wrote a letter to Yomar Foods Incorporated in Connecticut to figure out the franchising costs and all of that. And the number is 70000 70000 is the buy-in mm-hmm. to own a Subway sandwich shop in 1996. And Which isn't like, it's not a ton of money, you know? It's, it's not, not a ton of money. Yeah. Now, we're not rolling in dough in the lease. We're middle, middle class. You know, if my mom wanted to, you know, move the mortgage and freak some numbers and nip and tuck here and there and I bust my ass, we could have found $70,000. Yeah. We could have found a building, done it up nice. and, And I'm telling her, I go, this sandwich shop does not exist in this entire, like a third of the city is without a subway. I'm telling you, Joyce, this is going to be the thing. Yeah. We will eat forever. <laughs> All we have to do is own it for a couple of years and then sell it. Quarter meal, ma. Yeah. Boy, you think I sent you to all them damn testing ACT LSAT books for you to be making sandwiches? <laughs> You go into school. I go, just let me take a year off. Not knowing what it is now, I was asking for a gap year to yeah. start a business. Yeah, yeah. And my mom was not with it, bro. She was not with it. You need to go to college. And I get it because her generation fought and got beat on for us to have the right to do X, Y, Z. So damn it, you going to go do what I marched for. And in her, in her estimation, at her age, people, you know, when she was your age, people were making sandwiches because they had to. Correct. Not because they chose to. Correct. Yeah. Understanding and seeing the tarot cards of which way the food winds were blowing. You know, you're not going to. And at this point, we're talking about a woman with a law degree. We're well past the master's now. Yeah. At this point, my mom has a law degree, working on a Ph, and she's teaching higher education. And I come, you know what really get us money? <laughs> sandwiches. Cold cuts. I'm telling you, Joyce, <laughs> these sandwiches. <laughs> so I go off. I go to college. I come back home after my first year um, at Florida A&M, 
And at this point, there's three Subway sandwich shops on the west side of Birmingham and the lines are out the door. And this is a true story. My mom will never admit this, but this is a true story. My first day when I got home from college, my mom walks into my room. She goes, hey, go get me a sandwich from Subway. Um, and I, you can't say it, but in my head, I'm like, you motherfucker, you knew. You knew this was going to be the shit. And now look at you. You're a customer at a place that you could have been an owner. Yeah. Do but, you think you she know, was fucking with you when she told you to get that sandwich? Oh, no. She would say, Subway is delicious. Subway oh. was amazing. <laughs> I know that's how you age yourself when you defend Subway and like the you gouge. They used to cut a little a divot in the set and lay the meat down inside the little yeah, divot. Yeah. Same way with Red Lobster. Red Lobster used to have to make reservations to eat at Red Lobster. And nobody believes me when I say that either. No, uh, Red Lobster, that was the where you went like for prom when I was 100%. Kid. That's where I went. Yeah. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. That was that was like the fancy prom dinner, you know. Um, yeah, but no, man. My parents were very much higher ed. You're going to school. Read this. Read that. You could play the sports, but the moment the grades fall off, we're taking the baseball bats and the basketballs, and you know, you'll yeah. sit at home and do nothing until you learn more. You know, which is a good thing. I think the thing that I picked up, kind of subliminally I would say from my parents was a sense of pride in black culture, mm-hmm. you know, because my father, you know, a lot of his work was rooted in civil rights, not just in America, but, you know, overseas, you know, Soweto, was, right. Didn't he yeah. work from Soweto? Yeah. And so he's in like, where they, Oh, they shooting over there. Cool. Let me get my tape recorder. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, but just he was embedded with black platoons in Vietnam and shit, like just wild shit, just yeah. reporting on racism. And so was it radio you know, reporting or print? Yeah, radio. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I would spend, you know, some days with him on speaking engagements where he would speak about a lot of issues, you know, that were relevant to the black community and still are to this time. But it just it gave me this sense of you know, get that knowledge in school, but you need to be prepared to move differently in this world. And here's the things you need to be aware of, you know? And like my mom was more get the knowledge and my my mom was book knowledge. My dad was knowledge of self and, you know, a little bit of street knowledge, you know, to a degree. Yeah. But so, but it was mainly your mom that was kind of like about pressure, the pressure about achieving, as opposed to knowing. Yeah, I don't think my dad ever went to a parent-teacher conference. Really? He didn't give a fuck about that. The, the, yeah, yeah. Joy scored, check on the boy. See yeah. What the, that school was calling the day. Like, my dad would tell my mom the school called. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like it was a message for her. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, I can tell. Like, I I'm mean, not both of y'all's child. It's <laughs> it's a huge it's a huge difference from like I mean my parents were divorced when I was four so my dad wasn't really in the picture but my mom I don't feel like she, I feel like she was like school's your business you know what I mean like <laughs> what goes on between you and that teacher that's your guys' stuff I don't need to know about that and she'd no, go to like no. a parent teacher conference but no way the level of engagement that there is now and I kind of like inherited that and I, and now I got I got divorced last year and I had been I had been skating on like just kind of letting my ex-wife handle all of those details you know like <laughs> there's something going on at school and all this shit and now it's like I gotta fucking pay attention you know because I you know now that you know now that we're separate entities it's like I can't be like that's your thing like mm-mm, it doesn't yeah. work that way like yeah. I gotta fucking I gotta read emails now, and I'm that's hard for me because I got Bro, real bad attention shit. So the school, and it's my fault because I gave the school when we first applied to this this fucking school for my son, and they asked for my email address. Anytime somebody asks for my email address, you don't give them the good one. Yeah, like, no shit. Yeah, give them the 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 side one. Yeah. So I gave them the fuck off AOL email. These motherfuckers send real emails that need to be read <laughs> to the AOL. And it's my fault. And yep. they sent 
they and me trying to be the I'm the man of the house and I'll handle the the, the lunch. So COVID hits. So they're doing the prepackaged. We send the, the the lunches to the school already, and you just it's it's TV dinners basically yeah, for four year olds. Yeah, yeah. And you pay monthly, and I just missed an email, and the school called me at like twelve oh five, five minutes into lunch. Uh, yes, Mister Wood. Um, Henry does not have food. Um, <laughs> did you see the email? I'm like. Y'all could have just gave him one of them extra TV dinners and then just charge me on the backside. Like when I come to pick my son up, just go, you have a balance. Before we can yeah. give you your child, pay for the TV dinner. Yeah. So, yeah. They got collateral. They got your boy. <laughs> yeah. You think I'm not going to give you $4? But they straight up didn't feed that child. They didn't send a meal. I won't say they didn't feed him, but they literally counted down to the child and- it is what it is, but yeah, there's this, this definitely, I definitely came up in a house where, you know, it was some gender rolling going yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was a lot of that old school ideology. So my mom was, my mom was school. That was, yeah. that was her thing. What do you know? What do you not know? I'm buying you books and worksheets and lesson plans and I'm going to keep you ahead of everybody. Yeah. Well, that also, you know, I think that that it is only natural that within a par- any partnership, there's going to be a division of labor. Like there's, you know, like there is going to be like that's, but you got to be, everybody's kind of involved in every department, but some departments you're the head of and some departments you're, you know, <laughs> you're, you're, you're like just an employee in that department. My ex-wife at one point was like, she goes like, I kind of get the feeling she's like that. You don't really care about the kids schooling that much. And I was like, yeah, you kind of got me. Yeah, you're kind of right. You know, <laughs> sorry. And because she was always like, she was an A student, you know, and she was a, you know, student council president and very much, you know, scholastic and always a good student. And I just kind of, you know, I was like getting by on B's just because I could kind of, you know, as a good listener, at least, you know, I could in class and I kind of got the gist of things, but. I didn't push it, you know, I didn't work hard. Is, is there pressure about having somebody else's name, being a junior? And it, yeah. don't you have, I read, do you have a half brother with who's Roy but Wood I Jr. Got, too? I got a gang of half brothers, but yeah, I got one that's Roy Wood. He's Roy L. Wood. So yeah. legally, he's, legally, I'm a junior, but everyone in the family calls him Roy Jr. because he was born first. Because he's Roy, uh, yeah, so I get it. You know, there's, yeah. there's, there's no beef per se. Yeah, but, yeah. But is it weird yeah. to have a dad named two two people after himself? I've ever said, Dad, ask, you're an egomaniac. I don't know. Ask George Foreman. He could. <laughs> I know George. Well, that's better. he's the you know he's the the top of the mountain on that one. You know, <laughs> at least Deion Sanders gave each kid a variation. Dion, yeah, yeah. DeAndre, DeAndre, uh, whatever. Abs- yeah, that's at least something. I that's why I didn't name my son after me. I didn't want him to be a third. Yeah, like, you know, go do your own thing, bro. That's Figure the way. I, I I don't have any. I wouldn't want that. I wouldn't want it. Like, yeah, if you want to cash in the family name coupon, if it comes in handy at some point in your life, fine. Be Roy's kid. Yeah, but yeah. Don't be Roy. No, I always, because to me it is, it's like, I don't know, my feeling with kids is it's not about me, it's about them, you know? And so it's like, yeah, shit, go do what you want, be what you want, just be happy, you know? Yeah, Um, I've just tried to, with my son, the only thing that I'm trying from my childhood to not, to not do to him is influence his interests but instead expose him to everything. Yeah. But that takes a long time. The thing we do now, Saturday morning, I try to find a new sport for us, us to watch. You know, we'll have breakfast and we'll sit on the couch, you know, sit on the floor, do a puzzle. Mm-hmm. And it might be figure skating. It might be, you know, it, we, we discovered roller derby. We finally, we, that's how far down the rabbit hole we are now. We're into <laughs> roller derby it, like because we watched demolition derby 
and yeah. the people crashing. And I was like, you know, people do this to each other too, right? <laughs> he's like, what? What? He's four. Yeah, he's yeah. like, yeah, four. <laughs> Bring it on. So, you know, when we're when we are outside, which is usually when we're down south, when there's a little bit of space, you know, we, we try, you know, you know, baseball, football, bicycle, frisbee, you know, just everything. Touch everything. Yeah. And it's weird because you can still see children gravitate towards certain things. Like I try not to let him see me doing like what we're doing right now. Like if he were home, the setup would be hey, man, I need you on this tablet doing this ABC learning. And if you do that, when I give you the signal, you can switch over to Netflix and watch Paw Patrol or whatever. Right. But he would see the cameras and the lights and the microphone. And there's a, there's a, you kind of got to dig for it, but there's a video of me and him at the beginning of the pandemic where he just loves picking up the microphone and trying to interview me. I remember. Yeah, that's it's so cute. I didn't teach him that. Yeah. I never taught him the concept of how to operate a stick mic. Yeah. I just gave him the mic. I gave him some headphones and he'll walk around the house and we'll just interview people. Yeah. And it's like, that's cool. But then it's also scary because I'm like, oh, shit, I'm raising me. Yeah. Which is, the I think, the worst, I don't say worst, the most challenging type of child to raise is the one that's just like you because yeah. you know everything that he's going to do. And there's nothing you can, at least it's an adventure with a child with a different personality. But yeah. I'm literally raising me and there's nothing I can do, even armed with 42 years of cheat sheets. <laughs> Emmy award-winning John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., a special run of six live episodes created by and starring Mulaney that'll stream live on Netflix during the Netflix is a Joke Fest. The comically unconventional show will feature special guests where John Mulaney explores the city of Los Angeles during a week when every funny person is in it. Watch John Mulaney Presents Everybody's in L.A., debuting May 3rd live at 7 p.m. Pacific time, only on Netflix. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Can't you tell my love's a growing? I have two kids. I have a 20-year-old son and a 15-year-old daughter. And they are like me. Like, there's there's the tragic ways they're like me. Like, unfortunately, my son has uh, inherited depression. Like, you know, like chemical depression. Mm-hmm. And that sucks, you know. But I also am kind of like... You know what? I'm I'm okay. You know, I'm not great. I went through a lot of hard shit on there's stuff that he goes through that I see that I'm like I oh boy, I was there. I understand it. Cuz the main thing especially as they get older is when you start worrying about like just you know, like tragedy. Just you know, like something terrible happening. And it, I find there's some kind of solace in at least that like those parts of them that I relate to or that I that I recognize as parts of me, I think, well, again, I'm okay. And don't do you do you sort of or is there is there stuff about them that they that bugs you that you wish you could change about your boy? I can't say I wish I could change it. I wish I could help him have a better system of dealing with it yeah so he so he has magnetiles right and he'll build whatever contraption and he wants to build it so high and so massive that more often than not the magnetiles collapse yeah he builds a structure barely touches it and it collapses and he gets frustratingly angry about it and so 
we it, it took a while, but you know, we teach him about centering his breathing and taking his time and really working through the problem. And I can still see, I can still see him get frustrated, but I can see him take the conscious choice to choose a different, to choose an off ramp, yeah, away from what he normally would have gone towards. So, I hate that. That fresh, that's something that I possess. It's something that I deal with. It, not being angry is a choice. Not being frustrated about things is a conscious choice that, for the most part, I feel like I've mastered. Yeah. You know, I'm a pretty even-keeled person. And getting him from where he is now to where I am, when I know that the testosterone ain't even started dripping yet. Yeah. But then what I'll see him do in the midst of all of that, my son will figure out a way through those magnetiles on how to build a support beam and to restructure his design in a way that now it doesn't collapse. And whether he's angry or whether he's calm, he never stops trying. Now, that's the shit I'm like, yeah, that's my boy. All right. But just do it without getting angry because that's not going to help you. And you are slowing down your you're slowing down the time to the solution. And, you know, he's young. I have to remember that he's four and not 14. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, I, you know, I'll be honest, bro, you know, as a as a black man, like. I know that some some people in my family think that I'm hard on him. And. And I'm not, I'm not a drill sergeant or anything wild like that. It's just more of a barometer of what you would expect from a four-year-old versus a five-year-old or a six-year-old, right. you know, right. he draws an eight, right? But I give you a perfect example. He'll draw an eight and you you celebrate that. And then I'll draw an eight next to it and ask him if he can copy it. And that's me learning how to communicate with him rather than just going, Hey man, that eight is crooked. Try again. Yeah. You know, that's bad parenting to me. Yeah. Because I'm not here to tear him down. It's going, that's good. And that is good for an eight year old. But in right. the back of my mind, I'm going, must be better, must be better, must be better, must be better. Which is what I always have on myself. And I don't want to put that on him because I don't want to raise a kid who thinks that he, you know, never did enough. Yeah. And also that's your stuff, not his. Correct. You know what I mean? Correct. Yeah. So you know, that that part of it is 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 what I learned. You want to get on some deep shit? What I really learned, and this is where, you know, you know, my girl, man, she she grew up in a more compassionate household. You know. Mm-hmm. So she is the softer one. She is the compassionate one. She is the one who can connect with him on a more emotional level. And you know, I've been been digging in these books on on you know love languages and attachment styles and stuff like that. And you know, my son is you know he's physically expressive. He he wants a hug. You know that's what he's on. And so I have to remember, like, that's something conscious that I have to, you know, remember because I didn't come up like that. And it wasn't that I was unloved. Yeah. I just didn't live in a house where people hugged a lot. I said they loved each other a lot. I knew it. You know, my dad was slipping in here and there. But, like, every night at the end of the night, no. Yeah. No, dog. My mama hit the door from Memphis State at 8. At eight eight thirty, you know, I'm getting in the bed. You know, yeah. like I come home, <laughs> I come home from school at three. Can't afford a babysitter, but also, you're in kindergarten, first grade, and you're, I want to say handling business, but I'm microwaving my own hot pockets. I'm doing my homework. Leave the homework out on the table. Yeah, um, I could watch some cartoons, and I knew to be in the bed. You know, by seven seven thirty. Put myself to bed. So, wow, that level of self sufficiency is something that I am often anxious for him to have because, as a black man, 
I don't know how much time I got left on this earth. So I don't always feel like I have the time and the luxury to just exist in a moment with him. In my brain, it's, I've got to get you prepared, bro. I've got to get you prepared. Mm -hmm. And I'm the only one who will care enough to do it. Now, he has other men in his life and his family, of course. But in my brain, I'm going, I have the best opportunity to to get him prepared and to make him feel loved and to do all these things. I was talking to the homie Baron Vaughn. He's been on this podcast just to drop a name. Baron, Baron, previous guest, Baron Vaughn. And we were talking about therapy, you know, and going to therapy and all of this shit. And, and I was saying to him, I said, you know, what's really, what's fucked up about, going to therapy is that you're unpacking everything that went wrong or could have been different or you're you're as a parent especially you're in therapy and you're evaluating everything up until now and while at the same time you are the purveyor of those experiences for mm-hmm. someone else that looks up to you So Mm -hmm. you're trying to figure out where shit went wrong while concurrently trying to do that same thing correctly with someone new. But at least this is happening, you know? And and Baron says some, he says some wild shit, man. He said, he said, our generation, we're the cycle breakers. That's what we're trying to do. And that's specifically as black men. Correct. Or do you think just gen- correct? Yeah, yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure that could still apply to anybody who's had generational lineages of people who didn't do the work on themselves and figure out why they are the mm-hmm. way they are and why things did. like. Of course, but as black men, especially, and it's just with this, with this constant, I am cognizant of the shadow of death. I'm not. I don't fear it or anything like that. But it's yeah. something that it sits in the back of my mind and whenever it happens, it'll be too soon as it relates to the boy. You know, I have a friend, I have a friend that, that has bladder cancer and the doc gave him a year to live. uh, If he doesn't have his bladder removed and he would have to go colostomy for the rest of his life. And he said to me, he says, um, I have no wife. I have no kids. I wake up alone every day in pain. I'll text you in a few weeks and let you know what I decide. I'm kind of thinking about just riding this shit out for a year. And like that type of thought, I think having a child kept me from having, you know, about my own existence. Yeah. Not necessarily, not suicidal in that sense, but just the concern of death is deeper now because it's like, fuck, I got to teach you all this shit, bro, before you're fucking, so I got to fucking stay alive. But who knows? Tragic shit happens all the time. All right, man, look, you got to draw your eights better. I'm sorry. (laughs) <laughs> but, but saying it in a way that's you know that's nice you know but i think that's the cool thing though right about, like podcasts and interviews because he's also going to be the first generation that's able to dig up shit on their parents and like really get into who mm-hmm. they were or what they were about you can like like how wild like could you imagine reading your dad's twitter page from the 50s and <laughs> just seeing, <laughs> I know what my dad's Twitter page like. These white folks, we got to get them. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, no, I um, yeah, I that is that is like, and I'm you know I have to think about it. I you know every time I do this, I know sometimes my kids listen to this podcast. I know sometimes. Sometimes they do look at my Twitter page. Generally, they don't give a shit about what I do, you know, like they don't, 
they don't watch the Conan show and they don't, if I'm in something else, you know, unless, unless, you know, like I'm in a show that they want to see anyway. And I kind of am like glad because I have such, at times I have such ambivalence about show business and how like, you know, you fucked up upside down priorities and yeah. And and that's, yeah. You know, I mean, it's just kind of like, I don't know if I care that much that that they, you know, I certainly don't want to, I want my kids to think I'm nice because I'm nice. You know, I want them to like appreciate that I cook them dinner, but I don't, you know, they don't have to like think of me as, you know, a comedian or anything. You know, the irony is that, you know, I'm on a show and I'm basically barking about all the same shit my daddy was barking about. Only I add a couple punchlines. Yeah. But that was never put on me. That was never. Yeah. I found it. And, you know, yeah. if he wants to, you know, he definitely has a sense of humor. He definitely does not not jokes. He enjoys the feeling of making someone laugh. So I know he's. Yeah. He's kind of had the first hit of the dope. So yeah. I know performance might be somewhere down the road, but I don't know if I'm going to, I'm not going to sign him up for the play. If he wants to no, do I, it, yeah. if, if he finds it, you know, let him find it. The same with the microphone thing, but yeah. you know, I'm not going to, like he gets that I'm on television or as he says in the TV. Yeah. You know, he gets that, you know, because, you know, there's nights, you know, I'm watching Daily Show just to see what edits they made to a field piece. You know, I'm curious. Right. I'm still a fan of the show. But I just don't want to push him towards that. You know, my, you know, a lot of my half siblings, the, the aforementioned other Roy, you know, he had a wonderful career in journalism for, you know, mm-hmm. 40 something years. You know, I have another wow. brother, Arthur, who has been, you know, station director at numerous TV stations across the country and top 10 markets, you know. Is it in the blood? I guess. Yeah. But the wood factory of broadcasters. <laughs> but, you know, it's nothing that I felt like anybody ever, you know, sought me. I was just, I just grew up around it. And then maybe that was the gravitation, you know. So yeah. If anything, Stuart Scott inspired me more to be a journalist because he talked about sports and crack jokes. Yeah. My dad is not funny. That shit was not funny. It was real, some real spit, yeah. but it was not funny. So you're 16. I'm like, I'm not doing that shit, man. <laughs> is your dad still <laughs> is your dad still alive? No, no. He passed my senior year of high school. Oh, okay. Uh when I was when I was 16. And up until that point. I wanted to be a firefighter. Really? Like that's that was the plan. I was gonna be a firefighter. And then my mom with her get an education shit comes in. And this is this is the shit my mom would do. She uh, well, you could be a firefighter, but get the degree in chemistry, and then you can be a fire inspector and a pyrotechnic, blah, blah, blah. Cause I used to love fireworks, can, and this is how she You got can become an arsonist that way. You can learn Bro, how I got fires to start. I got I got grounded for two weeks for lighting a bottle rocket in the house one time. <laughs> like that was the type of pyro. Like I, right. I burnt GI Joe's yeah. in the grill, like just all types of torture to toys. Yeah. Never bled over the animals. Thank God. <laughs> but like my mom would just go, Oh, firefighter. That's cool. But he is the next level. And that's what I was going to do. <laughs> And then fucking Stuart Scott. It wasn't Stuart Scott alone. It was it was four journalists. It's Stuart Scott, Fred Hickman on CNN SI, Van Earl Wright on Headline Sports, and Jenny Moose. And you know, Jenny Moose would always do like these lighter side yeah. type stories. On CNN, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like that was OG Daily Show. Yeah. It felt it was lighter. Right. And, you know, Fred Hickman had stature, but Stuart Scott was funny. Van Earl Wright used to just say all crazy types of shit on headline news. And I'm like, you can just be silly like that and still wear it in a suit? You yeah, can be silly? Yeah. I was like, all right, well, what the fuck is that? What do I need to major in to do? Journalism? <laughs> okay. All right. 
I guess that's what I'm doing. (laughs) Now you, uh, you have a, a a new podcast coming out that I want to make sure to, to promote here. And it's a, it's like about the workplace. It's called job fair. Yeah. It's Roy's job fair. All it is. So during COVID and you saw like everybody was dealing with unemployment, it's still a big issue in this country. It's not a podcast to solve unemployment, and it's not a bunch of people just rattling off job listings. I mean, there's part of that, but it's just commiserating with strangers over wild work stories while also from time to time finding job openings around the country. Because the thing is that where jobs, like there's like certain rocks you may not look under or certain pivots you may not have thought about making in a particular career field. So if you hear people talking about that stuff, I feel like there's really, there's a connection with strangers because I think there's things that connect us. And, you know, like we all need something to eat. We all need someone to love. We all need a way to provide, you know? And this is just a conversation, you know, with, you know, we talk about your worst and first jobs or your, scams you used to run at the job, which is something I actually enjoy talking about running scams. That used to be my thing as a teenager. So it's fun to to talk about that type of shit, man. But yeah, that's, that's literally all it is. Like it's not, dude, what did my mom say? It takes my mom. I, Cause I was trying to explain this to my mom and my mom said, said that, that this isn't verbatim, but just, Oh, so you talking to people who either love their boss, hate their boss, or need a new boss? <laughs> I was like, that yeah. covers it. I think that's yeah. yeah. Or be your own yeah. boss. Like those are the four quadrants of employment: yeah. love, hate, need a new one, be my own, be your yeah, yeah be my own. <laughs> yeah. Well, what what uh, what do you want for your future? I mean, uh, what do you see? Like, what's your optimal future for for you? And it doesn't mean work; it means everything. Yeah, I don't know, man. It's weird because that question is always filtered through work, right? Yeah. What do you want for yourself? Well, here's all the things I hope to achieve, and here's all the people I hope to have worked with, and here's all the younger people that I hope it, like. I just want to be a beacon to people from Alabama who think that they can't do shit because they from Alabama. Yeah. That's it. So the only way I can do that is going out and trying to kick ass and being on TV right. from time to time. But also being so, a vocal good father like you are too. I think that that's, that's pretty important. You know, like I think that people, when they hear that, a la- you know, you as a latchkey kid are as, as involved in it and have as big a stake as you do, that's progress. Cycle breakers, baby. Yeah. Fucking cycle breakers. You know, this is the three questions, and I guess the best way to ask the last one, which is what have you learned? Like, what would you what would you like your son to learn from you, from your experience? Like, to look at you, and what would you like him to take away from your story? Uh, the biggest thing my son could take away from my existence is that you're not the sum of your mistakes. And... You don't need permission from people who hate you to be a good person. I think we get caught up a lot in the opinions of others of ourself when the truth is that your opinion of yourself and your dedication to being a person of moral stature, that's all that matters. You know, not even the opinions of your family matter. Ultimately, it's just of the people who claim to love you. And if they love you, then it shouldn't matter. You know, I think that's the main, because you're going to make mistakes and you're going to be criticized for them. And I think how we respond and react in those moments really dictates a lot of what our real trajectory could be. Yeah. You know, potholes are inevitable. It's, you know, Knowing how to get the car back on the road. Right. That's the hard part. Or how to steer around them. Yeah, that too. Recognizing them when they come. So, you know, I think that's, you know, if I could only say one thing, it would be that. Well, that's a pretty good thing to say. And this is a a pretty good place to end. 
Uh, this this has been a really really excellent episode of this show, and I and I appreciate you taking time on your big day, your wisdom tooth day. Yeah, it's you know? time. And I got to talk to that wisdom tooth for the. I'm the last uh, podcaster that'll get to talk to that wisdom tooth. Yeah, it's time. The next podcast I do. Yes, so anyways, <laughs> it's the job fair podcast. <laughs> I was, Straight it's like a workplace. <laughs> all right, Roy. Well, thank you so much, and um, and good luck. And I hope to see you soon. When all this, yeah, man. You know, I'll get back out over. to the West Coast. Yeah, got to get on this vaccine waiting list. Yeah, me too. Check these websites. All right, <laughs> sir. You have a good one. All right, y'all. And thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of the Three Questions. And we'll be back next week. Bye, bye. I've got a big, big love. The Three Questions with Andy Richter is a Team Coco and Earwolf production. It is produced by Lane Gerbig, engineered by Marina Pice, and talent produced by Galitza Hayek. The associate producer is Jen Samples, supervising producer Aaron Blair, and executive producers Adam Sachs and Jeff Ross at Team Coco, and Colin Anderson and Cody Fisher at Earwolf. Make sure to rate and review The Three Questions with Andy Richter on Apple Podcasts. Can't you tell my love's a This has been a Team Coco production in association with Earwolf. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com.